0: Welcome to the Brookings Cafeteria, the podcast about ideas and the experts who have them. I'm Fred Dews. President Donald Trump has articulated an America-first approach to foreign policy, one that challenges the liberal global order the United States helped build and has led for over 70 years. Now, alliances and institutions are being tested in new ways as the nature of international cooperation and competition changes and as new threats emerge around the globe. To help us understand this new geopolitics and America's response to it, I'm joined today by Thomas Wright, who directs the Center on the United States and Europe here at Brookings and is a senior fellow in the Project on International Order and Strategy at Brookings. He is author of a new paper from the Brookings Robert Bosch Foundation Transatlantic Initiative titled, A Post American Europe and the Future of U.S. Strategy. And he's also author of the recent book from Yale University Press, All Measures Short of War The Contest for the 21st Century and the Future of American Power. I'll be speaking with Tom about both publications in just a moment. Also in this episode, another installment of Wessel's Economic Update, about diminishing competition and increasing corporate consolidation. And also, you'll meet Jamie Kerchick, a visiting fellow in the Brookings Center on the United States and Europe. If you have a question for one of our experts, send it to me at bcp at brookings.edu. If you attach an audio recording, I'll play it on the air along with the answer. You can follow the Brookings Podcast Network on Twitter, at Policy Podcasts, to get the latest information about all of our shows. And also, you might be interested in hearing from two Brookings scholars who have engaged in some very timely and interesting discussions on other podcasts. Suzanne Maloney, the Deputy Director of Foreign Policy at Brookings, was recently on Susan Glasser's Global Politico to talk about the protests in Iran and the Iran nuclear deal. And Susan Hennessy, the Managing Editor of Lawfare, was just on the Ezra Klein Show giving a rundown of the investigations on Russian involvement in our election and possible obstruction of justice by the Trump administration. All right, on with the interview. Welcome to the Brookings Cafeteria, Tom. Thank you. It's great to be here. It's great to finally have you in the studio across the table from me. You made an appearance on the Brookings Cafeteria in 2016, but it was a special event that we had rebroadcast on the show. You've been on our 5 podcast at least three times yeah, and on intersections fun. with Adriana Pita, but the first time I've had a chance to actually talk to you face to face. So good to see you. Great.
1: Likewise. Thanks. So the
0: paper about U.S. strategy in Europe, you ask in the paper, why should Americans care about what happens in Europe? So what are the practical reasons why Americans should care about what happens in Europe?
1: There's sort of a historical answer to that. And then I think there's a very sort of pragmatic answer to that. The historical answer is that the U.S., Course got involved in Europe after World War II. Well, you know, once the US got dragged into World War II, but then primarily afterwards in trying to rebuild Europe, reconstruct it, and essentially bring to an end this period of security competition between France and Germany. And so the US positioned forces in Europe. It promoted European integration. It was really heavily involved in all aspects of European politics, all aspects of Western European politics at the time. And then later on, after the Cold War, was equally involved in Eastern European politics, helping to bring those countries in to NATO, encouraging them to join the EU and helping them become democratic and market economic systems. And so that was done largely because the U.S. believed that a strong and prosperous Europe was good for the United States, that it was good for the international order, that it provided a strong partner and ally, but also it provided a strong economic partner as well. And the U.S. benefited when others were doing well and when they were democratic and free. So that's sort of the historical answer. That answer, I think, would find very little resonance with President Trump, who really is not all that interested in history, to put and, and says, well, what do we get out of it? What's sort of the benefit. And I would say that on a pragmatic level, particularly regarding the European Union, that the US has a number of very important um, interests. The first is that if Europe were to break up, and if the EU were to break up, it will cause all sorts of problems. The breakup of the Eurozone could cause a new financial crisis worse than 2008-2009. The United States couldn't escape that. And so it's avoiding those disasters that's vitally important. The second is if you look at Europe's help. Just even outside of NATO, on Iran, the EU is of vital importance in helping the US impose sanctions on Iran. The US couldn't have done that alone because of the nature of the global economy. And so the EU and Europe more generally is very aligned with the United States on a lot of these issues. And the final one is that if the US sort of pull back, um, that Russia and China will gain an influence and they would use that for their own strategic ends, which are somewhat at odds with those of the United States.
0: It strikes me that the U.S. involvement and leadership in the European project, in a way, is kind of the linchpin of the geopolitics of U.S. leadership in the world. It's like the U.S. relationship with the European countries, with NATO, with the EU, maybe is the essential component of U.S. leadership worldwide. Is that an accurate way to look at it? Yeah,
1: I think there's definitely two. I mean, one can sort of argue if they're equal or a little different, but I think the two most important regions— And the two most important areas of engagement since World War II have been Western Europe initially and then Northeast Asia, particularly Japan and later Korea. And those two regions, I think, are at the heart of what we think of as the global order, right? If you think of the global order, we often think of institutions or, you know, the UN or the IMF or the World Bank. It really it's founded on healthy regional orders in Northeast Asia and in Europe, particularly in Western Europe, but since the Cold War more broadly in Europe. And that, that provides the context in which everything else is possible, because if you have security competition in Europe and the risk of war, or if Northeast Asia goes dramatically backwards, all the global cooperation we have would fall apart as well, right? And so it's sort of a prerequisite for the global cooperation, Are these healthy regional orders? And so that's what George Kennan identified. Some of his documents back in the late 40s, the U.S. sort of care mainly about, he said, Japan and then Western Europe were two sort of areas. The nature of that was expanded later by others. So I do think that that is, and the European piece of it particularly, is of absolutely vital importance. And this historical role, which is partly military, but also political and diplomatic, is absolutely vital. Now, I was surprised to
0: learn in the paper that the U.S. relationship and involvement in the affairs of Europe at a very micro level actually started to change during the Obama administration. We often see President Trump come in with America first and everything changes, but I don't think it's that clear cut,
1: is it? Right. Actually, I think this is more of a trend over time. When President Obama came in, he, I thought, had the view that everyone should sort of tend to their own garden, right? That the Europeans should take care of their own problems and issues and that the U.S. needed to do less and that Europe wasn't really sort of where it's at, that the U.S. had a role there, the U.S. should continue to be engaged, that Europe would be a partner. He wanted to do that. In 2010, he pulled out of, there was a U.S. EU summit. He just was like, I'm not going to that, <laughs> like, that's I don't really have time, or the interests, and that was sort of a, a declaration of intent. And we saw, especially when Russia invaded Ukraine, that he bolstered the traditional US security commitment. So he went to Estonia, he said Article 5 is important, that was terrific. But on a whole range of issues, he did, particularly political and diplomatic, more than military, he pulled back and he did sort of less, and he tried to pass sort of the burden onto Europe, which sounds fine. A lot of people would say that's okay. But I think it did have a pretty damaging effect on Europe, particularly at a time when Europe had all these challenges and it's divided about what type of future it wants and not to have the U.S. playing that role. And then that approach really went on steroids and got a nastier element to it than when President Trump took office because he actually saw the Europeans as competitors or as rivals of sorts and had very negative views towards the European Union. So it wasn't sort of the benign disinterest that President Obama had. It was more pointed than that.
0: Well, I want to come back to some of those damaging effects and those events that were happening in Europe because you talk about it in the paper. But just one follow-up question about the kind of maybe retrenchment from Europe a little bit under Obama. Is that related to his administration's so-called pivot to Asia
1: They said it wasn't. I think they didn't intend the pivot to Asia to be seen as a pivot away from Europe. I think they did probably intend it to be a pivot away from the Middle East. And that's what they were trying to convey. They did go to some lengths afterwards to say this doesn't have implications for Europe. But I think in a practical sense, just when you look at what President Obama was willing to sort of invest in, that he, for instance, on the refugee crisis, when that was erupting, never really understood that that would pose an existential threat to the EU. He never factored that into a sort of Middle East diplomacy and was very slow to sort of react. He saw the refugee crisis as primarily a Syrian and a Middle Eastern sort of issue. He was very reluctant to engage in Libya and put lots of limitations on US engagement when he did. But he said that France and Britain should do it. And then they weren't able to step up to the mark. They tried, but they were unable to do what was required. And so... I think they didn't try to make it into doctrine. They were trying to say they were very engaged, actually. But I think just on a pragmatic basis, it was uh, particularly on that political and diplomatic side we saw a pullback.
0: Let's take a quick break now to hear from David Wessel.
2: I'm David Wessel, and this is my economic update. For now, the U.S. economy is rebounding, but there are some chronic problems out there. Stagnant wages, sluggish productivity growth, fewer new companies being started up. What's wrong? One diagnosis that's getting increasing attention is that the U.S. is suffering from too little competition. Too many big firms dominating their industries. Too much regulation that entrenches big firms and disadvantages new ones. I've been looking into this lately, and here's what i found. There's no question that in all sorts of industries, the biggest companies are increasingly getting a larger share of the business. And it's not just Google, Amazon, and Facebook. Ten years ago, the top four U.S. airlines collected 41% of the revenues. Today, it's 65%. Despite the proliferation of craft brewers, the four big brewers now have 90% of the beer market. And in almost every metropolitan area, there have been hospital mergers. And there's now academic evidence that prices are higher in industries that are more concentrated airline routes with little competition, hospital rates in cities where there are no competitors. Some people, particularly on the left, say big is bad, and we should break up these big companies. But maybe these big companies are big because they're better as opposed to because they're unfairly squashing competitors. Well, that's a possibility, and there's debate about that. One worrisome sign, though, is that profits are higher in these more concentrated industries, but companies in these industries aren't investing very much. Simply put, Big companies are so entrenched they don't have to invest as much to ward off potential competitors. That's not good. It would retard innovation, retard productivity growth, and slow the pace of progress. Looking beyond the size of companies across the economy, there are other symptoms of diminishing competition. A surprisingly large number of workers, for instance, have to sign non-compete agreements, which, when enforced, inhibit a worker's ability to change jobs to make more money. And we're not just talking software engineers and CEOs here. One in seven workers earning under $40,000 a year is bound by such an agreement. And a recent eye-popping study by a couple of Princeton economists found that 58% of major chains, Jiffy Lube, Burger King, stuff like that, restrict and sometimes prohibit one franchise owner from hiring a worker for another to the obvious detriment of the workers. And then there's the explosion of occupational licensing. In the 1960s, only 10% of U.S. workers had a license. At last count, 22% do. Now, sometimes these protect the health and safety of consumers, but sometimes these licenses are just a way to protect license holders from competition. So what's the answer here? Well, a political commitment and resolve to protect the robust competition that spurs productivity growth and improves living standards is needed. That means more aggressive and creative antitrust, and it means more attention to lifting regulations that inhibit competition and strengthening regulations that promote it.
0: Back to my interview with Tom Wright. I think one thing that happens in this country a lot, and I know I'm guilty of this, is that we tend to look at what's happening in Europe through the lens of what U.S. policy is towards Europe, but Europe has its own things going on. Things happen that challenge European countries, European unity. You just mentioned the refugee crisis, which was a major challenge. You've mentioned the Russia's invasion of Crimea. What are some of the other challenges that Europe has faced over the past, say, decade that have maybe caused the U.S. to retrench a little bit and present new challenges to the current administration?
1: Yeah, I mean, it's been a really remarkable and negative decade for Europe. You know, back in 2007, beginning in 2008, Europe had very few problems. You know, there was divisions with the US over Iraq that were beginning to be healed. But generally speaking, things were in reasonably good shape. Um, the Europeans wrote a national security strategy or European security strategy in 2005 or six, I think. And the opening line was something to the effect that Europe has never been better, right? That it's never been more peaceful, more secure um, than it was at that time. And in the subsequent 10 years, We've seen this remarkable array of crises, all of which sort of have negative synergy with each other. So I think the first one, maybe the most important is the Eurozone crisis and these massive divisions in the Eurozone that happened after the international financial crisis. And then we had Russia's invasion of Crimea, annexation of Crimea, and what that portended then about Russian revisionism in Europe. So Russian revisionism is the second sort of crisis. The collapse of the Middle Eastern order after the failure of the Arab awakening and the refugee crisis is the third. Brexit is a fourth. I think the election of Trump and sort of the existential crisis that poses for transatlantic relations is a fifth. The problems for democracy in Central and Eastern Europe and the real regression of democracy in Hungary. Also, the pressure on democracy in Poland and the emergence of this new autocracy, I think, is a sixth, which is deeply sort of embedded. And then, of course, terrorism and the protracted nature of terrorism, particularly in France, and the escalation of those attacks is a seventh. And what's really interesting, Fred, about those, I think, is we used to think about, you know, virtuous cycles. So these are all negative sort of cycles, right, or they all have this negative synergy with each other. So the collapse of order in the Middle East results in a refugee crisis that the Russians stoke by intervening and then see that as a benefit to weaken the EU. And those refugees create these political effects in the EU that are exacerbated by the Eurozone problems and crises and the resentments from that. And then that has pressure on democracy in Central and Eastern Europe. And then it's a the terrorism aspect as well. And it all sort of feeds itself, right? So it's not just, you know, if there was just one thing, it might be possible to sort of deal with it, but they all interact and in very sort of complex ways and make it all worse. And so some of the parts is worse than each individual element. And
0: this is all happening in the additional context of an already retrenching America from Europe and then the election of President Trump and now a year into his administration. In the paper, you said that Trump is outwardly hostile toward some of the affairs of Europe. But over this past year, has his administration's actual policies diverged that much from what was happening at the end of the Obama administration?
1: Yeah. So he is an interesting evolution on Europe. So when he took office, he knew he didn't really like NATO because he has this historical 30-year hostility to U.S. alliances, which NATO is a part. And so he had a framework to think NATO is ripping us off and Hence all the statements about NATO being obsolete. But he really knew nothing about the European Union and he knew nothing about Europe and very, very, very little about Europe and Europe's history. And he began to think about it in like the late fall, around the time of the election. He was very influenced by two people, uh, Nigel Farage, who became good friends with him in about August of 2016. And they first met in Mississippi at a rally
0: and Farage is a British politician. Farage is
1: the British sort of radical politician who ran the UK Independence Party, he was a key figure behind Brexit, but really represents this sort of new nationalistic right in Europe and very sovereignist, very pro-Putin as well. And then the other was sort of topical given this week is Steve Bannon, who came on board and did have very strong views about Europe and was very linked in with radical right groups like the Front National and others, nationalistic groups in Europe. And so he was getting all this stuff. And then he starts to say all this stuff about the EU and it's a vehicle for German domination. And he begins to wonder if it should break up and when it should break up. And Europeans were getting very worried. But then once he was elected and he started getting exposed to European leaders, he was sort of surprised to find that they didn't want the EU to break up. So he had a famous meeting with Theresa May, where he said to her, so when is the EU going to break up? And she said, well, we don't want it to. We need it to work. We're going to leave, but we need a strong EU to deal with. And he was very surprised. And so he began to sort of moderate his view. And now I think his opinion is, I don't really like the EU. It doesn't make much sense to me. But if they want it, they can have it, right? like I'm not going to sort of spend much capital trying to attack it. And so he has lots of spats and issues. But the European leaders, I think, have been quite clever in trying to be close to him personally. And so Macron invited him to Bastille Day, put him at the head of the viewings place for the parade. Well, the military parade, he loved it. And so then it was, he could have had a bad relationship with France, but he's a good relationship with Macron. And, you know, he had a decent-ish history with Merkel, but the meetings have been okay. So I think where we sort of are with him is that the military, Mattis and others, have managed to reverse him in Article 5 of NATO, which is a mutual defense guarantee of the NATO treaty. After a lot of resistance and a lot of opposition on his part, he's sort of pulled back a bit from this opposition to the EU. He has sort of a working relationship with European leaders. But he doesn't really care about it. Like, he has no real interest in being engaged in Europe. He's not going to do anything to help. They're largely sort of blissfully unaware of a lot of things that are occurring at the highest levels. I mean, they have no involvement in Brexit negotiations whatsoever, Clinton had been elected, she'd probably be actively involved in trying to broker a deal or at least say we need a deal, some deal that, uh, you know, we can't live with no deal and being engaged in that way. So they have retrenched significantly and I think it's sort of just, well, let's just see what happens, you know, and it is a disengagement of, of sorts, particularly, and I think this is what people don't fully understand, is the disengagement is highest on political and diplomatic issues, not on military issues, right? So NATO gets a lot of attention and it should. But because there's so much institutional infrastructure there to keep the U.S. engaged in NATO, that it's relatively straightforward for the Pentagon to do that. But on all these other areas, you do see this pullback.
0: Well, I think that's interesting that you mentioned what a Clinton administration might be doing differently from a Trump administration because you outlined three possible choices for U.S. involvement in Europe, and they were to take advantage of European divisions as one. The second one was benign disinterest in Europe's internal problems, which I think is what you're saying the Trump administration has kind of landed on, this sort of...
1: There's somewhere, yeah, there's somewhere between one and two, I think.
0: And then the third one is a return to deep engagement, which probably a Clinton administration would have done. How would deeper engagement with European affairs look? What would that entail from the U.S.
1: government? So there's no sort of silver bullet, I think, in terms of just, you know, hit this button or adopt this policy. But I'll give you a few examples. I think on Brexit, there's a real risk of no deal between Britain and the rest of the EU. There's a risk to the special relationship also between the US and the UK. I think it's super important that the administration and we have the Northern Ireland aspects, the US has interest in that, played a key role in that peace agreement. The U.S. should be deeply sort of engaged with Germany and France and others on the one hand, and Britain on the other, to say, you know, we require a deal here. And it's important that neither of you let this break down and sort of encourage the EU 27 not to try to punish Britain, and um, which some of them have said they would do to try to create sort of send a message and also to the U.K. that the U.S. isn't an alternative and that they do need a functioning close relationship with the EU even after they've left, right? And and then there were lots of specific ways in which that one may come out. Northern Ireland, I think, was one where the US presence was sorely missed in the recent round of negotiations. A second example will be on refugees, that the EU has this open borders internally, but no common external border. And there's lots of disputes between Central and Eastern European countries on the one hand and Germany, Western European countries and the other about how to handle this. The U.S. has very deep ties to Central and Eastern European countries. And they have, I think, some real concerns about where this is headed. I think the U.S. could play an important role to try to offer assurances, but also try to broker to push them more toward some sort of common approach, because without a common external border then the free movement of people is extremely difficult. And there's a variety of other issues, too. I mean, the European countries face the same threat from Russia on the political interference that the United States faces. This administration refused to let that be discussed at the NATO summit. It wasn't even raised. It wasn't on the agenda. There should be deep cooperation between security intelligence agencies on how to counter that threat at the NATO and at the EU-US level. That's not occurring at the moment. So I think there's a lot of different ways in which you could have it. And then the US should basically say that it has an interest in trying to resolve some of these major crises. And not to be sort of interfering and saying to Europeans how to do their business or anything like that, but really to just have an active role. One area that Obama did do that, and there were many areas where he didn't, but there was an economic crisis over Greece for a long time. But very specifically, I think it was in 2015, just after Cyprus was elected prime minister, and he sort of pulled out of the agreement with Germany. He refused to pay. There was all this back and forth. And at the end, he backed down, but it looked like Wolfgang Schäuble wanted to kick Greece out of the Eurozone anyway. And Jack Lew got involved Secretary of the Treasury. Secretary of Treasury and said that the US couldn't live with that because it could destabilize the global economy. He sided with Italy and France to sort of push back against the Schäuble position, and in the end the Germans compromise and neck we stay in. You know, that sort of engagement in European debates, where the US has an interest in it and where there are these divisions. And there's sort of a positive role to be played. I think are are good examples of the type of just active engagement. And you know, the U.S. won't always get its way, and shouldn't, but it's more just to be diplomatically engaged and to recognize that these debates about the future of Europe have a broader implications than just for Europe. That split between
0: Germany and Greece was, I think, a key feature of the eurozone crisis, where you had kind of the northern and the southern European Union countries in this disagreement, if you will. But now we've seen on the political side, the defeat of far-right candidates in places like Britain and the Netherlands, but increased illiberalism in places like Poland and Hungary. Do you worry that maybe instead of a north-south split, Europe might be splitting between west and east?
1: Yeah, I think you're exactly right. There are multiple splits at the moment within countries and between them. I think two of the most significant, as you just mentioned, in between countries are in the Eurozone, between the core countries and the periphery, right, or basically creditor and debtor nations, or countries that, you know, some countries coalesced around Germany have a very strict, fairly austere interpretation of how Eurozone governance should go, and others believe in mutualization of liabilities and more shared burdens. And sometimes that's called north-south. That doesn't totally work because some of them aren't in the south, but generally that's accurate, I think. And the second one, which really comes out of the refugee issues, but also on some of these democracy issues, is between Western and Eastern Europe. And even the countries that are not you know, at risk of democratic backsliding have a much more sovereignist approach to the EU. So they don't want any further integration. They're much more akin to British Eurosceptics, actually. They fear their cultural sort of identity will be submerged in sort of this post-sovereignty Europe. They don't want large numbers of immigrants to come in because they're worried about what that would do to their identity and to their societies. They tend to be fairly reticent about further integration. But the problem is that you need further integration because Europe is this sort of anti-Goldilocks moment, where it's just enough to create vulnerability, but not enough to provide protection. And so on economic issues and on the migration, free movement issues. But that is a fairly deep division, and particularly between, I mean, partly this is an effect of who's been elected recently, and that can change. But Between Poland and Germany is probably one of the most difficult at the moment. And a few years ago, Poland and Germany were super, super close. So that's manifested itself there in a very dramatic way.
0: In a minute, let's broaden our lens to the U.S. role globally. But I want to finish on Europe by going back to your paper. The main argument of your paper is that the U.S. future administration should reverse the kind of disengagement with Europe. But if the Trump presidency runs its normal course, that's going to be either three years or seven years from now until there's a new president. And we don't have any idea who that would be. Do you think the next presidential administration could even reverse course after three or seven years of a Trump presidency?
1: Yes, but it will be different. The situation is not going to stay static. So as you point out, I mean, three years or seven years, it's a long time. And what happens will change the... Situation and some stuff may be irreversible at that point. Other things, new crises may have emerged, where there would be deep divisions about how to be engaged. I think all we can sort of say at the moment is in terms of the mindset and the mindset of sort of U.S. engagement. I think that that can change, and I hope that it will. But you know, it's very possible that if you look at the last election cycle, most of the candidates were in favor of doing less. And pulling back. You know, Bernie Sanders, opposite Trump in many ways, had a foreign policy that was largely others should do more. The US is doing too much. Obama's done too much. He criticised Obama for being too active, uh, for doing too much elsewhere and said, we need to focus on inequality at home, focus on jobs at home. That's where my focus will be. He really sort of gave the impression that he really just didn't have that much interest or time for some of these other problems that he'd want to play a a good citizen role, you know, and actually, you know, help, but he wasn't going to sort of be diverted. So if someone like that was elected, you could say, oh boy, that's really different than Trump. But there would be a lot of similarity there in terms of, you know, the lack of commitment to being engaged, even though it's a very different variety. You know, it's sort of left rather than right, and he'll be multilateralist and in favor of tackling climate change and doing all this stuff, but there will still be that fundamental reluctance to be engaged overseas. So we'll see where it goes. I do think just one final point before we move on is um, if the 2020 election either results in the re-election of Trump or in somebody you know wanting to further retrench, I think the rest of the world will take that as a signal that things have really changed. You know, there's a debate about 2016 about if it's a temporary aberration or a fundamental change. If 2020 is relatively consistent with 2016, then the rest of the world will be in no doubt the US is largely gone, is largely pulling out. And then that will have major repercussions, I think, in a way that 2016 people are sort of waiting and seeing because they haven't really thought about alternatives.
0: Well, I think that's a great segue to discussion of your book, All Measure Short of War, the contest for the 21st century and the future of American power, because now we're looking ahead to the U.S. engagement or disengagement, not only in Europe, but in the rest of the world. Can you first, Tom, tell us the origin of the title, All Measure Short of War? You mentioned George Kennan earlier. I know it has something to do with him.
1: Yeah. So it was the title of a lecture that Kennan gave, uh, I think, in the National War College, which is about the coming competition with the Soviet Union and he was trying to sort of convey that there'll be a peacetime competition but it won't really look very much like peace because there'll be lots and lots of things being done. The absence of major war for some time hopefully but you'll see all this competition. It was also the title of a strategy by Roosevelt toward Germany where he promised all measures short of war to help Britain against the Nazis in 1939 to 41, so between the outbreak of World War II globally and then the U.S. entry in December 1941. So war could still occur with all measures short of war, as it did in the late 30s. But really what it's trying to convey is that we're moved from this era where the major powers were largely cooperating with each other and some people believe they were converging with each other to one where it's going to be increasingly competitive and countries are going to be using all the different tools that they have, all the different opportunities they have to gain an advantage over each other. And
0: now here's another installment of our Coffee Break. Meet visiting fellow Jamie Kerchik.
3: My name is Jamie Kirchick. I'm a visiting fellow at the Center for the United States and Europe, as well as the Project on International Order and Strategy. I'm a correspondent for The Daily Beast. I'm a columnist for Tablet Magazine, and I write a bunch of other publications as well. I grew up outside of Boston, Massachusetts. What inspired me to pursue my career in the journalism think tank world, I guess, is that I'm not really qualified at doing anything else. Journalism, for me, was always a chance to see the world, to travel a lot, to investigate issues that are of interest to me. And it's allowed me to do that over the past 10 years, I guess, since I graduated college, I haven't really done anything else. and I've been enormously lucky to be able to sort of combine the world of journalism and think tank and public policy. And I've been doing that for the past maybe five or six years, sort of working as a journalist, but based at a think tank institution. I often say that working at Brookings is sort of like a uh, being on the faculty of one of the top universities in the world without having to teach undergraduates or um, deal with the vicious faculty politics. It's a very collegial place. My first real job in journalism was working at The New Republic magazine here in Washington. And I was there for about three years, and there were some real serious financial difficulties. This was around the crash of 2008, and I was laid off. And I wound up by real chance working for Radio Free Europe, Radio Liberty which is based in Prague, and I had a great job there. I moved out to Prague knowing very little about that part of the world, about the former Soviet Union, having studied it, obviously, having studied the Cold War and having a real interest in that 20th century history in university. I studied it under John Gaddis, who's probably the premier Cold War historian. So I definitely had an academic interest in it, but not real experience. So I wound up in Prague, and I had this amazing opportunity as a writer-at-large to travel the former Soviet Union. This was around 2010, 2011, so... was the time of the reset, the Obama administration reset. There were a lot of hopes that relations between the U.S. and Russia would improve. So I had a front row seat to see how that was not working. So, you know, now obviously with what's been going on in our own domestic politics, it didn't come as a huge surprise to me, having sort of been in that part of the world and traveled all around for quite some time. So having lived there and experienced it, that's really how I would say my real professional working interest in Europe started. If you ask me what is the biggest problem we're facing in the world today, I think it would be there's so many it's hard to choose from. But I think what I see at the root of lots of them is a turn toward illiberalism, a turn away from liberal democracy. And if you look at many of the sort of maladies we're facing, whether it's neo-authoritarianism, if it's the rise of anti-Semitism, if it's racism in society, I think a lot of it can be traced back to this abandonment of the liberal idea, certainly in this country, but also definitely in Europe, where I just wrote a book called The End of Europe. In the appeal that alternative forms of government seem to be having, namely the kind of Chinese, you know, state authoritarian capitalism model, the Russian strongman model, just sort of the general illiberal models of organizing our lives as societies, unfortunately seem to be gaining traction and popularity. I'm working on lots of different things. Certainly the future of the European project is something that we're very interested in at the Center on the United States and Europe, the transatlantic relationship, how that's going to change under the Trump administration. Are there going to be new features of this relationship? How does it have to change? I'm very interested in Russian interventions in democratic societies. This is something I've been interested in since I started working at Radio Free Europe long before it became a very popular topic. Russian propaganda, disinformation, fake news, all of that I think falls under that category, something that I'm I'm interested in. I'm also interested in the future of American foreign policy and how domestic politics will affect that. So how will the reorientation or the realignment even of the Republican and Democratic parties If there are serious realignments, how will that affect American foreign policy going forward? So all those things are of interest to me. Well, aside from my own book, The End of Europe, Dictators, Demagogues, and the Coming Dark Age, available on Amazon at all fine bookstores, there's a book I keep on recommending to lots of people. It's written by a friend of mine. It was written in 2014. It's about Russia, and it's called Nothing is True and Everything is Possible by my friend Peter Pomerantsev. It's a great title. And it's such a prescient book, because it was written about Russia under Vladimir Putin. I and mean, Peter was a sort of reality television show producer. And he provides this really rollicking, but also very erudite, fascinating tale of how Russia became the sort of you know, postmodern dictatorship. And you know, reading it now in 2017 in America, I and mean, just seeing the sort of cynicism of the Putin regime and how it sort of managed the democratic system, which is what they call it there, it's very eerie reading it now in the United States, and we also have a president, unfortunately, who seems to have a similar view towards, you know, facts and reality. So it's a brilliant book, and I can't recommend it highly enough.
0: You talk in the book about the age of convergence in the period following the end of the Cold War, which I guess we date, roughly 1989, 1991, sometime in that period. What was that age of convergence, and how do we know that it's over?
1: The age of convergence is something I talk about to sort of try to convey this sense in the 90s and 2000s that as countries participated in the global economy, as they worked together, as they faced common threats and challenges like terrorism, nuclear proliferation, climate change, and others— that they would work together more often than not, that their similarities and common interests would be more important than their differences, that they would all become over time partners in trying to uphold the international order and old-style divisions of the kind that we had in the 19th century or the 20th century, that they would be less and less important. They wouldn't fully go away, but they would be less important and that there would be this sort of imperfect cooperation toward a common objective. And this, I think, was sort of a driving assumption behind successive U.S. national security policies under Clinton, under George H. W. Bush, Clinton, Bush, 43, and then Obama. And that that has largely come to an end now. You know, that no one really believes or shouldn't believe that Russia is on a pathway to further integration with the West and wants to sort of be a partner in upholding that Western international order. China it seems to be headed in a very different direction also. It's very different than Russia, but it's headed in a very different direction to the West. And so you have this new era of competition where these countries are really balancing against the United States, using different tools, military tools, diplomatic tools, to push back. The example I use, Fred, sometimes to illustrate this is if you look at what, in 2003, you know, there was huge opposition to the war in Iraq. Russia objected to the UN Security Council. It didn't arm Saddam Hussein. It didn't send troops to Iraq. It didn't shoot down U.S. planes. It didn't you know, do any of these things to really impose costs. It didn't sponsor, like, randed, you know, Shia militias, right, to fight U.S. troops. Versions of this are all things they did in Syria in 2015, 2016. They sent Russian troops in. They said they would fight the U.S. if the U.S. got engaged. They warned the United States not to engaged in their campaign against the Assad. You know, they deployed real power to try to advance their position. Well, that's, you know, the world of balancing. And that's, I think, the world that we're in. And so we're in a much more geopolitically competitive world than we were sort of five or six years ago. And I think it's not really to do with Obama. It's to do with these broader forces and the view that autocratic regimes have of the Western order and the worries they have and the aftermath of the financial crisis and and also just that all things come to an end at some point in this sort of, you know, period that we had has just run out of steam.
0: Well, these measures short of war apply not only to the U.S., but also to Russia's actions and Chinese actions, right, in their attempts to increase or solidify, if you will, their spheres of influence. So what are the tools in their toolboxes that are short? Of war.
1: Great question. Just one minor point in what you just mentioned, a series of influence. The type of world that they want is one in which they have a series of influence in their region. And they're not trying to overturn the global order, but they do want this regional order more to their liking, which has global implications. And they want a more nationalistic, more mercantilist world, this less universalist, where size really is important about how countries act, you know, that they have more rights and smaller countries in their neighbourhood, Sort of very different type of international order than what we have at the moment. They're very different because Russia, you know, doesn't have much economic power, China has a lot, Russia is declining, China is not. So they each have different tools. But I would say the common area really is that, you know, we have been integrating as a world since 1991. And for about two and a half decades, we've integrated in all areas. And we did so when it made sense to do so. We never paid any attention to the strategic risk. And now we're all integrated, but we're all vulnerable, right? We're all vulnerable to each other and we're all open to each other. And so the main tools that countries are using are ones where they believe they can exploit the vulnerabilities of others, right? And so the U.S. has done that to exploit Russia's reliance on the international financial system through the sanctions, Russia's done that in the cyber domain, where the US is very exposed, and also in the openness of political systems, you know, where it's been very innovative about using tools to manipulate the political systems of Western societies. China has done it in its own way, in terms of trying to influence domestic politics In a slightly different way than the Russians, particularly in Southeast Asia and Australia and New Zealand, also maybe here and in Europe as well, it's also using its economic leverage to try to get an advantage. And so we see all of these, this weaponization of integration, and this will continue and there will be constant innovation in this sphere will constantly surprise us as strategists sort of adapt certain things that we've taken for granted, like Facebook or Twitter and weaponize them and use them in ways that were totally unexpected.
0: So we talk a lot about the United States, China, and Russia and their spheres of influence. And I think I understand Russia's sphere of influence is seen playing out in Crimea, in Ukraine, and other parts of far eastern Europe, especially Belarus. China in the South China Sea, I think you've called it, their attempt to build a lake for China by fortifying those islands out there and other places. Where does this leave regions in the world like sub-Saharan Africa, and South America, and the Indian subcontinent?
1: Yeah, it's a really terrific question. And, you know, I don't really talk about those in the book, but there's a reason behind not doing so. I think one of the big flaws in the Cold War strategy was the sense that it was global, that everywhere mattered equally, and that one could be worried about the threat of communism. And if one was, then you would have to fight that in Vietnam, or you'd have to fight that in South America. And these were universal narratives that didn't quite fit. You know, maybe Vietnam, as we know now, was much more about nationalism than it was about communism. And one of the points I try to make in the book is that we need to be very specific about the types of Russian and Chinese behavior that pose a risk to the international order, that not everything does, right? That I think that China's Interactions in Northeast Asia and Southeast Asia are risky because they run the risk of destabilizing these heavily industrialized populated regions with lots of nationalistic countries who are all very economically successful with lots of territorial disputes. That's a recipe for geopolitical catastrophe. But if you look at what China's doing to its West in Central Asia with One Belt, One Road, we may have problems with that, we may have disputes with that, but it's a lot less of a challenge because there aren't as many obvious conflicts with the interests of the U.S. You know, if China, Pakistan being a good example, you know, the U.S. has this troubled relationship with Pakistan, but it's a partnership. If China wants to go in and take over that role and it believes it can stabilize Pakistan, then maybe that's a good thing. <laughs> you know, maybe that's maybe that's a, a burden for them rather than a big victory. And so, and similarly with Chinese investment in South America, you know, that may be good, it may be bad. I think there are problems with it. But I don't think it's a strategic threat that we should get up in arms about, about how, you know, those countries can sort of handle it. The U.S. can compete with a positive vision and alternative rather than in seeing it through a security lens primarily. So I try to sort of explore in the book. I try to really focus on those areas that I think are of greatest strategic risk, which is not to say that the other things aren't important because, Um, National security policy or strategy is not the same as foreign policy. You know, foreign policy includes lots of things that aren't necessarily strategic threats because you can have all these opportunities. You can have all these, you know, bilateral issues that are important but don't sort of fit into the strategic sort of lens. And that's fine. You know, we don't want to perceive Africa through the lens of competition with Russia or China. You know, we should engage Africa on its own terms. And on the issues that are there. And so sometimes that will fall outside the remit. So of just the narrow sort of national security strategy. You're right, I don't really talk about it that much, but it's intended to signal that there are lots of issues we have to engage with on their own terms. You don't need to push everything under the umbrella of one narrative or strategy.
0: So kind of looking ahead, kind of wrapping up with the big picture focus here, what is your view of how the United States should respond strategically to this new and emerging geopolitics?
1: So I finished a book largely before Trump was elected. My answer then, and still a large part of my answer now, is that the U.S. has to recognize this competition and engage responsibly in it. I think Trump took some steps in that direction with the national security strategy that I'm not quite sure reflects his personal views, but with some of his staff, I don't think they do so as responsible way as I would like. But there were some maintaining these healthy regional orders, deepening sort of U.S. engagement, competing with Russia and China, reconsidering some of the areas where we're exposed to actions they could take and protecting against those, working with allies to push back. All of that, I think, is absolutely vital. But I would add that I think over the past year, there was a more fundamental question now about the direction of the United States overall you know, whether the U.S. sort of pulls back from this international order, which I think is a real possibility if this political movement, this America First movement continues. And so I think that the real task of people inside the administration now and in the future is really to continue to manage President Trump so he doesn't execute his sort of visceral instincts, which are much more hostile, I think, to the liberal international order than than some of its policies have been to date because of the success that the so-called adults in the room have had about pushing back.
0: Well, Tom, this has been a fascinating conversation. It kind of gets me back to what I studied in college, which was the U.S.-Soviet Union-Russia relationship. And so this has been a lot of fun and very insightful. Yeah, it's been
1: great. Thank you so much. So thanks for coming
0: by. And we will check back in with you and also your colleagues in foreign policy and other programs when the time is right about this new geopolitics that we're seeing. So thanks again, Tom. Great.
1: Thank you so much. Thanks for
0: And that does it for this edition of the Brookings Cafeteria, brought to you by the Brookings Podcast Network. Follow us on Twitter at Policy Podcasts. My thanks to audio engineer and producer Gaston Riberedo with assistance from Mark Holscher. Thanks to Brennan Hoban and Chris McKenna for production assistance. Bill Finan does the book interviews. Design and web support comes from Jessica Pavone, Eric Abalahin, and Rebecca Weiser. And finally, thanks to David Nassar for his support. You can subscribe to the Brookings Cafeteria on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get podcasts and listen to it in all the usual places. Visit us online at brookings.edu. Until next time, I'm Fred Dews.